You're going to love this. Just love it. Oh, man, really? Really? Yeah, really. Stuck in the middle with you, right here from Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles. It's your broadcast, as heard on 90.7 FM in LA, 91.7 FM along the Oregon Central Coast on KYAQ, coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org, on the Stitcher app, on the TuneIn app, on the iTunes. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio or Free Brooklyn, and five days a week on Radio Sputnik and on Radio Stations Unknown. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com. A lot of breaking news again uh, as we go to air today. And I'll just get this one out of the way first because this is becoming a daily thing. A new hack each and every day. Hackers now may have accessed security clearance for intel and military personnel. Security clearance information for intelligence and military personnel, according to AP, as we go to air. And as longtime listeners know... I bring this up each and every time, uh, I, I at least each and every time I have the time for it, in order to underscore how, yes, when you hear, and you will, if you haven't already, that internet voting is a great thing because of uh, military-grade encryption, nothing to worry about. Please keep in mind all of these stories I've been giving you over the last several days, weeks, and even years at bradblog.com on Hackers being able to get uh, access to the highest security websites in the country, in the world. They're able to get at this information. But, of course, they won't be able to get at the information as it's stored on your local election officials' computers. They've got even better security uh, encryption schemes, protocols, than the CIA, the Pentagon, the Army, the White House, the IRS. Nothing to worry about. Also, big breaking news that I'll get into some detail in a moment in the U.S. House on Friday. Democrats, specifically progressive Democrats, have for now been able to hold off fast track authority for the Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Agreement, the so-called TPP trade deal with uh, about nine uh, Pacific Rim countries that uh, Democrats, progressive Democrats in particular, do not like at all. They don't like the trade agreement and they don't like the fast track authority that the White House is asking for, which would allow this uh, trade agreement to go through with with just an up or down vote in the Congress. No debates, 
No conference hearings, no amendments, no nothing. For now, the Democrats have been able to hold that off. I will explain how, because it might not be held off uh, for long. That may change in the next few days and weeks. Maybe. It's a victory for now, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. Coming up, we'll also tell you exactly what is the matter with Kansas. Or at least we'll try to. There is a, a couple of things going on in Kansas. Now, I'm from Missouri, so Kansas right next door. Not that different from where I'm from originally. Good people, fine state. I love the state of Kansas, actually. But they have gone off the deep end since uh, Republican Governor Sam Brownback has come in and taken over the state. Him and his crazy right-wing, anti-voting Secretary of State, Chris Kobach. In any event, there's uh, two amazing things going on. Uh, One, an amazing provision just signed by the governor, by Brownback, that I must misunderstand. I must not get it. I, there's something about this that I, 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 I'm i just not getting because it can't be as insane as it sounds. It's just too insane. Matthew Menendez from NYU's Brennan Center for Justice, which is helping to sue the state in regard to this absolutely insane provision, will be here to tell me how I must be getting this completely wrong. I must be because this is so obviously and blatantly anti-constitutional in every regard that surely there is something about it that I'm just not getting. That's going on even while the state is fighting to pass a budget uh, this week because the radical extremist right-wing tax-cutting provisions of Governor Sam Brownback have plunged the state into a deficit, a $400 million deficit coming up for 2016 that they must close by law. According to their state constitution, they have to have a balanced budget. Well, they're now uh, behind the eight ball, $400 million, thanks to these tax cuts by the Republicans while refusing to increase revenue there. So they got to do something about it. And the result is this week, the governor was reportedly in tears, in tears, in a meeting with his fellow Republicans. Uh, Last night, I should say, Friday morning uh, around 4 uh, a.m., legislators were still in session trying to pass a budget. One of them himself in tears. In response to all of this, yes, I know, Desi Doyne, don't look at me. It is this uh, insane. I know, this is crazy. I'm not overhyping it. This is what's going on in Kansas. I'll get into the details uh, in a minute. But this is what uh, the so-called, so-called conservative policies uh, and the tax cuts have done to the state of Kansas. They've completely hosed the budget. They've hosed the budget, they've hosed the state, they've hosed education funding in the state. It's resulted in this $400 million deficit. Yeah, and as I understand, they had to close schools early because they didn't have enough money to pay (laughs) to keep schools open through the end of the school year. I mean, really basic public services stuff, the things that, you know, real average people, the people that keep the country running. Because they have to cut taxes for wealthy people. They have to cut taxes for people who are running businesses. It is just the insanity of ideology. And they refuse. That's right. And they refuse to uh, to raise any revenue to pay for those cuts because of the magic of Reaganism. Cut taxes. The money will come flowing in. No, it won't. It never has. 
Anyway, we'll get into those details. Uh, Desi Doyen, you will also be back with us with our latest Green News report, speaking of hosed, on how the uh, MSM, the, uh, the mainstream media, as we call them, may be doing their job on climate change for a change. At least if the way that they are holding Rick Santorum to account for attacking the Pope is any indication. Also, the G7 has declared an end to fossil fuels. No, really. Declared a complete end to fossil fuels. Uh, Europe and the U.S. We will explain what all of that means in a bit. But first, okay, this TPP battle. I want to try to make sense of this because there was a lot of drama on Friday in the U.S. House. And it's kind of confusing, to be frank. And, uh, you know, and, and basically what you're going to hear from the media is that uh, this is a d disappointment for uh, for Barack Obama. His own Democrats went against him. They drew blood against Obama. What a humiliating defeat this was for the president. And, yeah, it uh, kind of was. And that's fine. But that's not what actually matters here. That's not what exactly what you, the voters, need to know. Because we've been talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership for some time on this show. Earlier uh, in the week, on Wednesday, we had Congressman Brad Sherman talking about it, begging people to call their Congress members and say no on TPP, no on Fast Track for TPP. Uh, Congressman Alan Grayson was here a few weeks back talking about how terrible this uh, trade agreement is, how it's going to continue wage stagnations in this country, how you will hear once again that sucking sound that Ross Perot talked about back in 1992 as more jobs continue to go overseas. If this bill is signed and if the president is given fast track authority to negotiate a final deal, which will then be allowed to pass in the Congress with support of Republicans, with no debate, no amendments, etc. So, yes, it, these were stinging defeats for the president and for Republicans, at least for the moment, on the fast track authority deal for the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The president's been pushing for this. Republicans have been pushing for this. It's opposed by most Democrats. Uh, this would allow, the fast-track authority would allow the president to finish this pact uh, and then present it to Congress with an up-or-down vote. They would just have to take it or leave it. Nothing they could do about it. Now, that fast-track authority would be offered not just to President Obama on the TPP, but also on another of uh, another set of uh, trade deals that are also in the works and other trade deals beyond that for the next 10 years. It will give him or any future presidents for the next 10 years the same authority to negotiate anything that they wish to describe as a trade deal without allowing Congress to change it, to add amendments, etc. So it's all a bit confusing what has just happened on Friday afternoon in the U.S. House where lawmakers needed to approve two different bills in order to pass legislation that would be consistent with what has already passed in the U.S. Senate. The Senate's version of the fast-track legislation included both the main uh, trade partnership agreement the Fast Track Agreement, TPA, and the legislation uh, designed to do things like retrain American workers who will lose their jobs because of the trade agreement. So it will put money 
into retraining workers after this agreement is passed and yes sucks jobs out of the US that part that part of the deal that retraining uh, business is called trade assistance authority TAA that's what it's called in the US house now congressman Brad Sherman uh, speaking on this show on Wednesday said that a lot of that money would come out of Medicare another reason to oppose that part of the deal you liking it yet is it good yet uh, but in any event, normally this is something that Democrats would support. It supports giving money to retrain workers. This is normally something that Democrats are in favor of, while on the other side, the other bill, the Trade Partnership Agreement, the Fast Track, is something that Republicans agree with. So Republicans are allowed to vote on what they want to vote for. Democrats are allowed to vote for what they want, want to vote for in the House. And then both of those things have already been approved in a single bill over in the U.S. Senate. But in order for that to get to the president in the House, both of these bills have to pass. Okay, so both the Trade Assistance Authority, the TAA, and the Trade Partnership Agreement, that's the fast track, the TPA, they were both up for votes in the U.S. House on Friday. The first one was the Trade Assistance Authority, which would, as I said, normally be supported by Democrats, but it failed to pass after Democratic Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi came out against it and even after the president himself came over to Capitol Hill on Friday to personally rally the needed votes. As David Dayen, our uh, friend and colleague, been on the show many times, wrote over at Salon on Friday, the president went to Capitol Hill to tell Democrats to, quote, play it straight on the vote. But, says Dayen, vote, voting for the TAA as a sweetener for a policy that most Democrats don't support is the opposite of playing it straight, he says. It's a stupid game, and progressives have finally decided not to play it. They're not going to vote for the one thing they like, vote against the thing they don't. And meanwhile, over in the Senate, both of those things are wrapped up into a single bill, and that allows it to move forward to the president. They're not going to do that anymore, apparently, at least on Friday. So the, uh, the TAA, the Trade Assistance Authority, which Democrats usually support, that failed. And then Congressman Boehner Speaker of the House, Speaker Boehner, just to show that he had enough votes, indeed he could pass the uh, the fast-track part of this, he went ahead and had a, a, a show vote, a largely ceremonial vote to show that, see, yeah, we can pass this. Well, yeah, they can pass that part with a few Democrats' help helping them. But if the other part of the bill does not pass, then the whole thing doesn't match up in the U.S. Senate, and they have to start all over. So without that part of fast track, the legislation will not match what was passed in the Senate. So that effectively kills fast track and potentially the full uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. Kills it dead in his tracks, at least now for the moment. Now, Republicans, uh, they brought back, they, they brought forward this this other part of it. They showed they had enough to pass it, but they couldn't do it with GOP votes alone. They had to get a handful of, of, uh, of Democrats, which is why the Democrats, uh, Congressman Sherman on this show, Alan Grayson, were asking people to call Congress. And you may still want to call Congress because this is still going to come up for another vote, possibly next week. 
So Congress, by the way, the phone number, jot it down. Call them anytime. 202-224-3121. 202-224-3121. That's your uh, Congress member. They'll put you in touch with your, your actual member. Um, so now it's a question of uh, how to move forward. Now that uh, they have failed, Republicans and President Obama have failed spectacularly on Friday to move this forward. Uh, each day that fast track doesn't pass moves the eventual vote, the final vote on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the really tough vote, as David Dayen describes it, further into the presidential election. And this is why they're in a hurry to get this passed. This, and because they're about to go off on their break for July 4th, at which time a lot of both Republicans and Democrats are going to hear from their constituents uh, who say, no, we don't want this thing passed. So they're trying to get it passed, the, the fast-track portion of it, they're trying to get it passed before the July 4 break. And then, subsequently, before the presidential election year begins proper. Dayan writes that once fast track passes, negotiators must finalize that deal with the 12 nations and then they must sign it and then start a 90 day legislative clock before it gets a final vote in Congress. That, he says, puts us deeper into the winter and maybe right around the Iowa caucuses. And this is a time that uh, these, well, a lot of Republican, uh, Republicans who are running may not want to come out in favor of this bill. A lot of Democrats running. Uh, well, Hillary Clinton is the question right now because Bernie Sanders has come out squarely against the, uh, against the TPP. But Hillary Clinton says, oh, she's not so sure. She doesn't know. She has not committed one way or another. Yes, that's Hillary Clinton's finger uh, wetted and standing in the air, waiting to decide which way the political winds will blow for her on this. Uh, she hasn't decided. So the longer this gets put off, uh, the harder it's going to be for her on this. David Dayen points out that Trent Lott used to say that you can't pass trade deals in even-numbered years when the public actually might be paying attention to what's going on, even-numbered years when we have elections in this country for the most part. That's what is likely to happen with more delays. The public may start paying attention if they are informed about what's going on here. So the clock is now ticking. And the clock is the ally of those who oppose the trade deals, says David Dayan. And the more they draw it out, the more difficult that climb becomes. That's where we are at the moment. Things could change in the days ahead. Boehner could bring this back up. Uh, he needs to bring up that uh, TAA part of it. The uh, tra uh, what is it? The, the, the trade assistance uh, uh, authority, trade assistance authority. He needs to get that passed. Otherwise, the Senate bill is dead, completely dead, needs to be rethunk entirely, which could also happen. So there's a lot to come in the days ahead. But for once, for a change, for now, the progressives win one in the U.S. House. Way to go, Democrats. Way to go, progressives for a change. Meanwhile. We got a mess in Kansas, thanks to Republicans, so-called conservative Republicans, and we will talk about that mess. We got at least one mess, uh, maybe more, in Kansas. We're going to talk about all of that coming up. 
Uh, and I will be joined by Matthew Menendez of NYU's Brennan Center of Justice to tell me how I'm completely wrong, how I must be completely wrong about what is going on in Kansas. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Please stay tuned. Yeah, I think they are free fallen in the state of Kansas right now. Welcome back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Laboratories of democracy. You've heard the phrase. Uh, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis in uh, New, New State Ice Company versus Liebman in 1932 popularized the phrase laboratories of democracy he described how a state quote may if its citizens choose serve as a laboratory and try novel social and economic experiments without risk to the rest of the country i don't think republicans understand how laboratories of democracy are supposed to work they just don't seem to get it one example mitt romney uh, after the uh, the fight during the Clinton administration for uh, universal health care, Republicans came up with this idea that they preferred sort of a market-based uh, health care thing where people would buy uh, health care policies through government exchanges and they would receive in exchange subsidies to help pay them for those premiums if they couldn't afford it. That was a Republican idea. Might sound familiar, doesn't it? Obamacare? Right. That's exactly what Obamacare was. But in uh, Massachusetts, before Obamacare was ever passed, in Massachusetts, Mitt Romney came in. He instituted, well, Romneycare. He instituted that Republican market-based health care insurance plan, and it worked. It worked great. It got almost everyone in uh, Massachusetts signed up for health care coverage. Great. Laboratory of Democracy. Tried it out in Massachusetts. It worked. Why not bring it to the rest of the country? That was Barack Obama's thought in any event. But, of course, Mitt Romney and the Republicans said, oh, no, 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 no. This worked in Massachusetts, but it cannot work in the rest of the country. Now, mind you, they say that because it was Barack Obama and the Democrats who passed it for the rest of the country. Had that never happened, you can bet your bottom dollar Mitt Romney would have been running on how he brought health care to the state of Massachusetts and he's going to bring it to the rest of the country in the same way. But no, since Democrats already did it, that means that, uh, you know, Republicans have to pretend that they're against it. Never mind that laboratory of democracy in Massachusetts. Uh, pay no attention to that. That policy works great on the state level. It won't work for the country because all the other states are totally different than Massachusetts. That was one laboratory of democracy experiment that apparently Republicans did not understand. Another one is, uh, well, the Reagan era. We've been talking about the Reagan era over the past few weeks and how I believe we are at the end of the Reagan era. Finally, we are looking at it, the dawn of a progressive age, how the idea that tax cuts for the rich somehow improve life for everyone, trickle down economics 
what George H.W. Bush once called voodoo economics, the failure of those policies. We now have actual data. We don't have to go out and, 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 you know, and, and try to trick people into believing that tax cuts for rich people will help everyone. We know that it will not. We know that it has hurt the middle class uh, you know, and those in poverty. We know that now. We've got data to prove it. But apparently the message hasn't gotten to Republicans, hasn't gotten to Republicans in Kansas. So in Kansas, they elected a radical Reaganist governor by the name of Sam Brownback back in 2010. Uh, And uh, he promised to bring even more Reaganism, more tax cuts for the wealthy to the state of Kansas. It didn't work. And when you're in a hole, stop digging. Well, they have not stopped digging in Kansas. And I will explain how all of this didn't work, but I I need to give a little bit more background on what's going on with their budget fight and then, more incredibly, what's going on with their constitutional fight and how they are undermining, seemingly undermining, uh, separation of powers as it's written into the Kansas Constitution, as it's written into the U.S. Constitution. Okay, a couple of things. So... Secretary of State Chris Kobach was also elected in 2010. He's another radical right winger. He was reelected in 2014, so Chris Kobach tells us. He ran on the premise of stopping voter fraud. I, I remember driving around back in 2010 in the state of Kansas, because I'm from right next door in, in Missouri, used to drive around, uh, go visit uh, family back in Missouri, saw these signs for Chris Kobach stop voter fraud. But, of course, he hasn't actually been able to stop any since he won uh, office in 2010 because there isn't any or there is next to none. Far more people would be stopped. Legal voters would be stopped from voting under Chris Kobach's radical right wing policies uh, for showing photo ID at the polling place, for requiring citizenship papers to be delivered before you're allowed to register to vote all of that stuff far more legal votes would be stopped than illegal votes that might be blocked nonetheless uh he continues to pretend there is voter fraud can't show anybody's pretending that there is and puts in these radical measures to keep you know largely democratic leaning voters from being able to cast their legal vote he's also by the way the guy who wrote the arizona papers please law that was found unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. But he does, they don't care about the Constitution. They don't care about the rule of law. They care about keeping Democrats from voting, putting in Republican, uh, you know, re- Republican ideology, come hell or high water. And so far, it's both hell and high water in the state of Kansas. Chris Kobach is also the guy who, uh, as I said, implemented the photo ID restrictions. He's also the guy who now forces newly registered voters to show proof of citizenship, which the federal courts and the Supreme Court has found to be unconstitutional. So instead, he only allows voters who haven't given those uh, citizenship papers, he only allows them to vote in federal elections. He says, oh, that, that only applies, the Supreme Court ruling, that only applies to federal elections, not statewide elections. So those voters are still effectively blocked from voting, tens of thousands of them from voting in state races in Kansas, thanks to Chris Kobach and the laws that he's passed that have been supported by Sam Brownback. Now, Sam Brownback, for his part, when he came in in 2010, he remade the Kansas Republican Party. He forced out other Republicans who were not as radical and right-wing 
as he was. The radical uh, right-wing tax cutters came in, and any Republican, uh, sensible Republicans were sent packing. He then implemented huge income tax cuts for the wealthy, for, for businesses, without measures to increase revenue. He said back in 2012 that, quote, our new pro-growth tax policy will be like a shot of adrenaline into the heart of the Kansas economy. Well, it was a shot to the heart of the Kansas economy, but it wasn't a shot of adrenaline. Because now the state is facing a $400 million deficit, which they must close by law, thanks to the balanced budget amendment that they have in the Kansas state constitution. And that's what led to last night... Uh, until four in the morning, legislators uh, panicking, trying to do anything they can to figure out how to close this $400 million budget gap. Till four in the morning. Democrats casted Republican leaders, according to the Wichita Eagle, for holding the debate at such an hour when lawmakers are tired and most of the public are asleep. The first bill to try to close this gap scraped by with 63 votes. That's the bare minimum for passage. The second one initially fell four votes short. So the uh, House Speaker out there invoked a rule known as the, the Call of the House, which pauses the vote, requires the Kansas Highway Patrol to go out and search for missing representatives so they can get more votes if they're not there. So they picked up the phone, they started pressing uh, their colleagues to back the bill for more than two hours, and then finally, uh, Representative Blake Carter, Republican from Derby, cast the deciding vote after 4 a.m. and then left the House chamber without answering any questions. We don't know how they strong-armed Blake Carter into voting for this thing. So the two bills will now generate $384 million in revenue to try to close this gap, $400 million gap. The governor will be allowed to issue $50 million in unspecified cuts. If none of this happened, it was possible that a 6% across-the-board cut would, would, would happen to everybody and everything, to higher education, to schools, uh, something that they were desperately trying to avoid because they've already cut the, the, the budget to the bone. Instead of just increasing revenue, you know, raising taxes, restoring these deep tax cuts that nobody paid for and that have cost the economy dearly in uh, in Kansas. They're letting things just go into the ground. Somehow or another, uh, they're <laughs> somehow or another, with all of this going on, Kobach was reelected last year. I'll explain that in a moment. But in any event, they passed this bill finally with uh, one of the speakers coming to tears, Congressman uh, Representative John Whitmer of Wichita, a freshman lawmaker, came to the House lectern sobbing to urge his colleagues to pass the vote in favor of uh, this bill. He said, I voted for something I am not proud of, but I feel it's what the folks need, said Whitmer in tears, according to the Kansas paper. Sam Brownback himself was weeping. In a meeting uh, earlier this week uh, with legislators in Kansas, uh, he expressed uh, c- the governor expressed concern that if the House and Senate lawmakers didn't come to a deal, he would have to order sweeping six percent tax cut, six uh, percent cuts, not tax cuts, six percent cuts across the state's budget. Brownback, 
According to uh, legislators at the meeting, also recalled all the public criticism he's received over the dim state of Kansas's budget, including being booed at the NCAA game in Omaha between two Kansas universities. Uh, he got choked up during this private meeting. He got emotional, said an unnamed legislator who attended the private meeting, according to the Topeka Capital Journal reported on Wednesday. They've got a disaster on their hands in Kansas, and yet they keep digging. As I said, Brownback, incredibly unpopular, was up for re-election in 2014. In, the, uh, in that race last year, Kansas gubernatorial uh, race, uh, Brennan, the Brennan Center for Justice's Wendy Weiser explained at the time that Sam Brownback was able to beat back Paul Davis, the Democratic challenger, by less than 33,000 votes. That, despite a strict photo ID law that was put into effect right before the 2012 election and new documentary proof of citizenship requirements for voter registration, Implemented by Secretary of State Kobach. We know from the uh, Kansas Secretary of State that more than 24,000 Kansans tried to register to vote last year, but their registrations were held in suspense because they failed to present the documentary proof of citizenship now required by state law. The pre-election polling average in the state gave the Democrat a 2.8% uh, advantage over Brownback in the days leading up to the election, but somehow Brownback reportedly won the race by 3.8 points, a 6.5-point six, uh, six swing between the pre-election polls and the election results. Who knows what happened? They use electronic voting systems in Kansas. For his part, by the way, Secretary of State Chris Kobach, who runs that election system, he was reportedly tied with his Democratic challenger in the week before the election. He ended up reportedly winning by a remarkable 18 points. How did that happen? Don't know. Ask the Secretary of State. Oh, that's Chris Kobach, who won by 18 points after being tied the week before. What the hell is going on in Kansas? What is the matter with Kansas? And guess what? All of that isn't even the worst of it. <laughs> the, the, the worst of it may be that Sam Brownback is now threatening to defund the entire judiciary. That's right. You've got three separate branches, uh, executive, uh, that's the governor, judicial, that's the, the, the court system, and the executive branch, that's the legislature. The legislature and Sam Brownback are now threatening to defund the, the 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 Kansas court system if any court in that system finds against the governor because in 2014 the Kansas court system found that the cuts that the governor was making to education were in violation of the constitution and the court system ordered the legislate legislature to refund Kansas education priorities as required by the state constitution this year, this week, Sam Brownback signed a law passed by the legislature that, sa that said if the court system finds against a lawsuit, I should say finds in favor of a lawsuit that has now been filed against the state, if Kansas finds against the governor and the state in this matter, 
the entire court system in Kansas will be defunded. When I saw this story, I thought this doesn't make sense. This can't be what it seems to be. You can't have a branch of government uh, threatening the court system. If the court system finds against them in a way that they don't like, the court system will be defunded. And yet, that seems to be what's going on in Kansas. Yes, Sam Brownback seems to be what is the matter with Kansas. But this can't be right. I can't have it right. The bill signed on Wednesday by uh, Brownback specifies that if any court stays or finds unconstitutional the 2014 law, which removed the Kansas Supreme Court's administrative authority over local court budgets and the selection of local chief judges, the entire state judicial budget will be stripped away likely leading to court closures and staff furloughs, according to the Brennan Center for Justice on Thursday. The state passed that 2014 law after the Kansas Supreme Court ruled against the state in a public education funding case ordering it to fix funding gaps. Many saw that uh, that 2014 law as retaliatory. Oh, do you think? Uh, Joining us here to talk about this uh, madness in Kansas and... What's the matter with it is Matthew Menendez. He served as he serves as counsel for the Brennan Center's Democracy Program at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU. His work focuses on fair and impartial courts. Uh, he graduated as a dean scholar from NYU School of Law, my old alma mater. Well, the NYU part, not the School of Law part. And he served as an aide to Senator John D. Rockefeller the Fourth of West Virginia. Matt Menendez, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you for having me. Uh, Great to have you here. Okay, Um, this all seems too insane. I'm sure I don't understand something about all of this, Matt. So if you can walk us through uh, what happened, what was the 2014 law? Uh, and 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 very quickly the the sort of the court background that led to it, and then what is this law that Sam Brownback signed this week? Okay, uh, to give a bit of background, I'll I'll jump way back to 1972 uh, <laughs> okay, when good. the the good people of Kansas ratified a constitutional amendment that provided. Uh, for a what's called a unified court system, where their judiciary, the administrative authority to uh, oversee the entire court system, is vested with the state supreme court, and that has been how the state has functioned ever since. Um, as you mentioned a few years ago, Governor Brownback and his allies in the legislature uh, cut public spending pretty drastically, mm-hmm. slashed taxes. Um, Subsequently to that, there was a lawsuit alleging that the funding for Kansas's education system was unconstitutional. And uh, Kansas, like many states and unlike the federal government, guarantees in its state constitution that every Kansas citizen uh, be afforded an adequate education. And the Kansas Supreme Court found that the inequities between wealthy districts and less wealthy districts were violating that provision of the constitution. And so ultimately then they ordered... Uh, the state to uh, change the way that uh, schools are funded or or, uh, to make it more equitable, or just they said, hey, you guys got to cough up more money for education. They uh, sent the issue back to the legislature. They did Mm -hmm. not order a specific remedy. So it it was a less intrusive 
ruling than it could have been. Mm -hmm. uh, they did not order any specific appropriations, for example. Um, nevertheless, uh, shortly thereafter, uh, the state passed a judicial budget, which, in addition to providing the necessary money to keep the courts open, stripped the state Supreme Court of some of its administrative authority uh, to oversee the state's courts. And so we, along with Kansas lawyer Pedro Iraganagarai and a law firm, Kay Scholler here in New York are representing Judge Larry Solomon. He is a chief district judge in Kansas and has been for more than uh, for a couple of decades now. And we are alleging that the 2014 law violates the separation of powers in the Kansas Constitution and is an intrusion by the other branches of government into the judiciary's uh, core operations. Now, this is. Uh, a chief judge in Kansas actually suing, uh, is he suing the legislature uh, or, or, the, uh, or, or Sam Brownback in this case, or both? Uh, it, technically, he's suing the state of Kansas. Okay. Uh, that, that is how you challenge uh, laws unconstitutional in the state. And what does this new law signed by Sam Brownback actually uh, threaten to do? And actually, actually, let me back up a bit. Is uh, Judge Solomon uh, suing against the 2014 law uh, that restricted the powers of the judiciary, which uh, is arguably in violation of the state constitution, or is he suing against the law that was signed this week by Sam Brownback that says it will defund the judiciary uh, if, if any court dares change that 2014 law? Uh, the current lawsuit is challenging the 2014 law. Um, we are taking a close look at the new law. We obviously believe there are major problems with it uh, and are considering our uh, legal options as we speak. Does the 2014 law that was signed this week actually define... What does it actually call for? Because... To me, it seems insane. And when I first heard about this, I thought, oh, people must be spinning this. I heard Rachel Maddow talking about it. Uh, I saw the, uh, the press release from Brennan Center. Uh, they must be spinning it. It doesn't really defund the judiciary based on a decision that the judiciary might make in the future, does it? That is what it says. It, it is incredible. I have never seen anything like this. Um, it is a radical provision, and uh, clearly there are some serious constitutional issues uh, when uh, a branch of government uh, threatens to defund another branch of government. Yeah, well, I know there are constitutional uh, restrictions at the federal level as far as the separation of, uh, of, of co-equal branches. Does that apply to uh, state legislatures versus uh, judiciary versus uh, executive branch, or or is that also in the Kansas Constitution uh, where there where that separation of power exists? The Can the Kansas Constitution also provides for separation of powers. So the judiciary is a co-equal branch of government. Uh, it has myriad duties that it is required to perform by the Kansas Constitution. Obviously, none of those could be carried out were the courts to be closed, and it would be an incredible affront to the rights of Kansans to, you know, that there's an old legal saying that there are no rights without remedies, and if courts are closed, then people will not be able to vindicate their legal rights. <laughs> now, it, it just, it, it cuts back on, on the funding for the judiciary, right? It doesn't, 
it doesn't actually close the courts if if they have an adverse ruling in this case because this is the case they're talking about right the case that you guys are bringing on behalf of judge solomon if the courts rule in his favor that's uh, on the 2014 case that's when the 2015 cuts to the court system kick in correct that's correct yes i i I just uh so there's nothing I don't understand about this case, right? I, I, I'm trying to figure out there must be something. This automatically kicks in, defunds the entire court system. Kansas will not have a court system uh, if this happens, according to the, uh, the, the law signed by that, this governor, Sam Brownback? That seems to be what they intend, yes. Okay. Um, and has has any suit been filed on the 2015 case yet, or is it all too new since it was just signed this week? Uh, nothing has been filed yet, but I strongly anticipate that there will be legal action uh, challenging that provision. Do we have any history? You said you've never seen anything like this in your life, and... I've never heard of anything like this in my life either. Uh, the idea here also that a, uh, a chief judge must file a suit against the state for whom the chief judge works. Have you ever seen anything like that where uh, 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 the, uh, an actual judge has to sue the state? There, there have been some cases where judges have acted as plaintiffs. Uh, it's been seen from time to time um, in the area of judicial salaries, where uh, state constitutions will provide that judicial salaries cannot be decreased, Mm -hmm. and the legislature will decline to uh, raise salaries for a significant period of time, which, with cost of living increases, represents a de facto pay decrease. So there there is precedent where judges have gone to court arguing that the judicial salaries need to be raised. But I, I have never seen a state threaten to defund their entire judiciary before. It is, it's beyond the pale. And, and what is the disposition now of the 2014 case, the one that, you know, if an adverse decision comes, it could defund the courts? What's the disposition of that case? Where is that? When are we likely to have a, a decision in uh, Judge Solomon's uh, case against the state? It is currently being briefed in the district court, that is the trial court in the state of Kansas, and the briefing will be finished early next month uh, in July. After that, um, you know, we anticipate that a ruling should not take a terrible long time. This is not a, a complicated factual dispute. This is a fairly clean question of uh, constitutional and statutory interpretation. Um, so it, it's always hard to say when a particular decision will come down, but I, I don't anticipate it should take ter- terribly long. And uh, the, the, the 2015 law, w- w- does that kick in even when a, a lower court decides uh, against the state in this, or does it have to go all the way up to the Supreme Court? The reason I'm asking is I'm trying to figure out how much of this is actually strong-arming by the governor, and I guess by his legislature, which he has uh, sort of built in his model uh, at this point, uh, you, you know, does this go all the way up to the Supreme Court? Do they have to worry about it, uh, the state Supreme Court? Uh, or, or does the 2015 bill that defunds the judiciary kick in as soon as a lower court finds against uh, Brownback and the state? 
the way the provision is written, it appears that even a lower court decision could trigger the defunding. Um, it's possible that a judge could strike down the law but stay the uh, effect of the decision pending appeal, or it's possible that uh, we or somebody else might file for emergency injunctive relief to block the implementation of that provision. Uh, it's unclear exactly how that would play out. This is just amazing to me. Do you see any parallels? Uh, you know, Rick Perry from Texas, the former governor there, uh, who's running for president now, has been indicted uh, for abuse of power charges, essentially threatening to defund a, uh, a, a an office there that oversees, uh, you know, public, uh, uh, how, how do we put it, ethics uh, laws and so forth. Uh, you know, he threatened to defund them if uh, the head of that office didn't resign after she was arrested on uh, 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 drunk driving charges. That's a felony, or at least that's what the prosecutor is charging in the state of Texas. Is there anything similar here where you've got this strong arming? I mean, it's clearly strong arming, uh, you know, one branch of government uh, to the other, or at least two branches of government, the executive and the legislative branch against the judiciary. Is there anything similar to that in Kansas law that you're familiar with, Matt Medendez? Well, I will say it it certainly raises troubling questions about due process and uh, attempting to intimidate judges in rulings in specific cases. And I would say I, I am not as familiar with all of the details in Texas, but uh, if anything, I think this Kansas situation is even more troubling because this is a co-equal branch of government. This is not some office within the executive or the legislative realm where, you know, the, the greater power to administer those branches of government may include the lesser powers to fund or not fund particular portions of those uh, agencies. This is a co-equal branch of government. Just unbelievable in every regard, and uh, I was hoping you would explain it to me and I would find it believable. I think I find it even less believable now that you've explained it and answered my questions. I'm from Missouri, by the way. I, I Right next door, I love Kansas, or at least I used to love Kansas. I don't know what the hell is going on uh, in that state anymore, and well, what is the matter with Kansas? It, maybe the answer is Sam Brownback. Boy, Matthew Menendez of uh, the Brandon Center for Justice's Democracy Program. Great to speak with you about this, and uh, I hope you'll join us in the future as this case moves forward because you're going to have to talk me off the ledge to uh, ex explain how this isn't the craziest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I'll be happy to do so, and thanks for having me. Thanks, Matt. Man, oh, man. That's nuts. Just nuts. Okay, uh, quick break. We'll come back with something much less nuts. Uh, Rick Santorum attacking the Pope and the Green News Report. Brother, stand by. Brad Friedman, this is your Bradcast. Okay, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman of bradblog.com with no time for small talk, Desi Doyen. Yep. We've got to run it. Our latest Green News Report. 
I guess the question would be, if he shouldn't talk about it, should you? So why not take the overwhelming majority of scientists at their word? Major media steps up, challenges presidential candidate Rick Santorum on climate science denial. The world's largest economies put an expiration date on fossil fuels. Want to see how climate change will affect your grandkids? NASA has just the thing. Plus, secret donors gave $125 million to climate denial front groups in just three years. Man, I would have been a climate denier had I known it paid off so well. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. I get it, Santorum. You... You thought the Pope was on your side, man. I know it must hurt when the man whose job is still steeped in medieval traditions is ahead of you on climate change. (laughs) Yep, this is your Green News Report. Instead of telling the Pope to shut up, why don't you just start listening? Okay, Desi Doyen, we now have word that this uh, Santa Barbara oil spill about three weeks ago has so far cost $62 million to clean up as it has sullied 97 miles of coastline. And there is no timetable for when the uh, cleanup, if ever, will be complete. Gee, I wonder how much a solar spill cost that day. In any event, what do you got for us today, Des? Well, first, climate change is now officially an actual thing in the 2016 presidential race. Republican presidential candidate and former Senator Rick Santorum was actually challenged about his recent remarks, criticizing... Oh, he's challenged, all right. Well, yeah, but he was challenged for criticizing Pope Francis over the Pope calling on Catholics to act on global warming and protect creation. Santorum said the Pope should leave science to the scientists. CNN's Jake Tapper challenged him. So why not take the overwhelming majority of scientists at their word and take seriously that humans are contributing to climate change with potentially disastrous results? Well, I, I would say this, that, uh, that there are a lot of scientists who believe, who believe that. There's a lot of scientists who don't. No, not really. Not. Uh, and I think it's important that we, uh, we take very measured, measured responses. And, and some of the responses that are being proposed actually do very, very little to combat the problem. Which is actually also not true. But surprisingly, Santorum was even challenged in the belly of the climate change denial beast of Fox News. Here he is on Fox News Sunday with Chris Wallace. You know, the Pope has a right to but talk about this? Pope can talk about whatever he wants to talk about. I'm just saying, what should the Pope use his moral authority for? And I, I would make well, the argument. Well, he would say he's protecting the earth. I, I would say that that's an important thing to do. But uh, I think there are more pressing problems confronting uh, confronting uh, the earth Uh, than climate change. Good luck with that, Rick. Yeah, and of course what he's really saying is that the more important things are protecting profits for the fossil fuel industry. Yep. But undeterred are the folks at the fossil fuel-funded Heartland Institute, which hosted its 10th annual conference promoting climate change denial in the nation's capital this week. Republican Senator James Inhofe of Oklahoma, who believes climate science is a hoax and a global conspiracy, received a special award for political leadership on climate change. You mean the guy who said this? The notion that man-made gases cause global warming is probably the greatest hoax ever perpetrated on the American people. Yep. 
And now we know that the Heartland Institute has received nearly $4 million since just 2011 to fund their climate change denial, and that was from secret donors. That's according to a new analysis of tax records by The Guardian, which finds that the network of think tanks and activist groups that spread disinformation about climate science have received more than $125 million in total in just the last three years. And that's from just two organizations called the Donors Trust and the Donors Capital Fund. The Donors Trust is related to the Koch brothers, yep. as I recall. And who, who is this other group? Donors Capital Fund is also related to the Koch brothers. Imagine that. Meanwhile, a big move from the G7. The leaders of the world's seven biggest economies have put an expiration date on fossil fuels. German Chancellor Angela Merkel and the U.S., U.K., France, Italy, Japan, and Canada announced this week that they have agreed to decarbonize their economies during this century with the goal of achieving zero carbon emissions by 2100. Now, that effectively declares the end of the fossil fuel era. It's only a declaration— But the G7 leaders say it will be part of a push for a strong U.N. climate treaty later this year. Finally, if you want to know how climate change will specifically impact your kids and grandkids and your town... I do. Now you can get really specific with a new climate impact tool released by NASA this week. It gets really, really detailed and lets you peer into the future from 2050 to 2100 to see the projected impacts in heat, drought, and rainfall for your town. What a tool. For much more on that story and all of the others we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at (laughs) greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget, you can find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. (laughs) And this has been your Green News Report. There's only three things left now. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen, our producer, Desi Doyen. My thanks also to booking goddess Cynthia Cohn and to my guest today, Matthew Menendez from NYU's Brennan Center for Justice. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can, as always, find it at bradblog.com and over at iTunes and a bunch of other places. We'll see you soon for our next thrilling adventure. Until then, you can find me on the Twitters and the Facebook at TheBradBlog. And, of course, at bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. 